masquerade, paper faces on parade, masquerade, hide your face so the world will never find you. From the Phantom of the Opera, music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Charles Hart. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Hello everybody, oh, yeah. and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it is the only podcast solely devoted to Silver Linings Playbook the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book, by Matthew Quick. By the way, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, uh, we were almost not going to do an episode today because um, I've been very busy. I'll get into that in just a second. Uh, but I was I was looking, I was like 50-50 on whether I was going to do it tonight. And then and I realized I went to count how many episodes there were, and this is the 24th episode which is pretty impressive or sad however you want to think about it uh that is not counting weeks uh that i was having breakdown episodes which were anywhere from like 30 seconds to five minutes of basically me explaining there was not going to be an episode but uh this is one of the first projects that i have created content on a uh, very regular schedule, we are going on almost half a year. One episode a week, 24 episodes. That's almost six months. Uh, so I was like, why Why would we break the streak now? It's not that we don't have things to talk about. Uh, it's just that I was I was busy. And I'll tell you what I was busy doing. I was, I was writing a script. I, I do a lot of writing. I've been working on um, books. Uh, a, a novel, short stories, some screenplays. I have the TV show in the works that I'm supposed to be working on scripts for. Uh, but a lot of the times when I'm writing, I'm just, I'm mostly taking notes. I've been most of the day, like looking up things and then jotting ideas down. And so like 90% of the writing that I do over, let's say given month or, or week or so is really research and note taking just from life. And then sometimes I'll sit down when I have the deliberate idea of like, this is the story I want to tell. Well, I just, I woke up and I had had this idea burning and, and this, um, you know, based on, on, uh, some things that I had said recently, uh, to, to a friend, um, that, that uh, and I miss him cause I haven't seen him in month. I haven't seen him since, since the pandemic started. He's my old comedy partner. And it was basically, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a pilot. He he doesn't even know about this yet. I haven't told him. It's just based on our life. It's a pilot about our life and how we met uh, and and our foray into comedy. And the reason I think it's gonna be easier and faster to write like this. The reason I got half an episode written already in just a, in about four hours. Usually it takes me about uh, ten to twelve hours to write a thirty-page script episode, but in, in about four hours today of concentrated writing time, I knocked out about 15 pages. And that's uh, as far as I got to, I say I've been working all day. When I say four hours, there's a lot more than just sitting down and writing start to finish for, for scripts because you write uh, screenplays and outlines, treatments, organize your thoughts, note cards. So, so you actually end up writing the content of it multiple times but today i just like i had the story burning and the dialogue so i just started writing as it happened and i'm very excited about what it's going to be even if it turns into nothing i think we're just going to make it anyway because how we, we can't get it wrong it's our life even if nobody likes it so that was what was going on and that was and and because when i get in the writer's zone sometimes i just i i've focus on it so much you have to that's why some of the famous writers like like uh, Hemingway and Thoreau and they all went into the woods up in Walden Pond just so they could sort of get rid of all their distractions the guy that wrote Game of Thrones I think George R.R. Morrow or something I might be thinking of the wrong person uh, he actually he writes on an old dos computer i've heard and he doesn't even work work in the in the word processor he works in like i don't know what it's called but the like 
the DOS screen or something. So there's no access to the internet so that he can't be distracted by other things when he writes. And I, I need to do a better job of, of not being distracted when I write, but I definitely, when I have an actual hardcore writing day, I get so focused into it that I just sort of try to blank, black out the world. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have the TV on in the background. I usually close off the internet and I will just write because you have you, like it. It's one of those things you just, you have to do it when it strikes you. If you write, you know that everybody has their different style, but I am definitely a person that likes to, that, that focuses on it and it likes getting it out. And I like doing it too. Writing is not a chore to me like it is. I know so many people say they like having written but they don't like writing. I actually like the writing a lot uh, because I, my problem is I don't like the reading, which is why the silver linings playbook by Matt quick is such a special book because I have only read a couple books in my whole life. So what on those other days that I'm unquote quote unquote writing uh, when I'm not actually technically writing, what I'm often doing uh, is the opposite of what I'm doing on my right, right days. Uh, and you guys might not care about this at all. <laughs> I think, I think most of my three listeners have fallen off by now, but, uh, we are still doing this, um, pretending like the world is, is listening. Uh, so yeah, on my, on my not focused writing days, uh, I, I actually do the opposite. I will have everything on. I will have TV movies, sometimes multiple ones, uh, the internet with news and articles and stories and stuff. And, uh, I, I will listen to audiobooks or, and, and have music on, and I'm just trying to absorb everything and listen for inspiration. I'll grab a line or a story idea or something. And that's when I just sort of brainstorm and put them all, put, put them all down and all the things that I like. Uh, the sad part about that is it's, it's such a scatterbrained activity. I can't focus on those things. So I'll often sit through numerous movies or TV shows when I'm doing that. And I won't retain anything from it except the point that I wanted. Like you can ask me about a movie that I had on during one of those writing sessions. And I might not even know a single character's name or what was going on. Cause it's not a real focus, like sit down and watch that. Um, it's just sort of like this, this free form brainstorming way that I do it. And I seriously, I'll have like multiple things on at the same time and just zip around them because I'm looking for ideas. But, uh, today I had a concentrated, uh, writing session. I'm very excited because I haven't been felt like I was productive like this way in a long time. I mean, I think they're both productive because that's where inspiration comes for everything. But at some point, at the end of the day, you need a tangible product. If you're, if you're a writer, you need to write. If you write books, you need a book. If you write stories, you need stories. And if you're a screenwriter, you need screenplays or teleplays. So I'm so excited to get, uh, get some, some pen on paper, some ink on the page, some letters on the word processor. Now, some of the things that I have been sort of sifting through, uh, when I, I haven't watched Silver Linings Playbook in a really long time. The last time I watched it was episode 10, which was 14 episodes ago. That is over th- about three months ago. So I, I have come up with this new rule. I think I'm going to watch it quarterly. And so I, I have not watched it in over three months. So I can't talk authoritatively to the level I like to about it. I start forgetting things. I have a really bad memory. Um, I'm very, I'm very lucky in that respect that I, when, when I watch a movie or a TV show or something, I'm a kind of person that is like, I absorb the idea, the general story, and I will remember my feeling about it. But my memory is so bad especially for things like that, I'll forget a lot of the details to include characters, names and plot points and different scenes I liked. So all I can tell you is like, I remember the movie. So, but, but the good thing about this is that means that I can often rewatch movies that I know that I love. If, if I wait like over a year or so and get about 80% of the enjoyment out of uh, that I had sort of from the original watch through 
So I'm very lucky in that respect, but I, I probably get a higher replay value out of things that I love than a lot of people that rewatch their favorite movies over and over. So this is a special episode where I wanted to talk about some of the things that I have been watching either on purpose or just in the background absorbing uh, uh, since I haven't been watching Silver Linings Playbook, but inspired. But you'll definitely see the themes connected to a lot of the things we've been talking over the last couple weeks, especially because philosophy has has become, the study of philosophy has has become a, a really big thing that I've been focusing in on. Lately, it's one of my favorites all the time, which, uh, so I'm, I'm getting back into that. Uh, so let's start off with what I've been uh, watching way more, way more reality TV than, than I'm proud to admit. Part of that is Netflix's fault, uh, because they push a lot of it on, on me. I'm not sure if everybody gets the same recommendations, but I definitely do. Uh, part of it is G's fault. So yes, Jermaine, if you're listening, um, you've, you've made my list. I'm literally giving you my name a shout out this week. Uh, we watched 60 days in and I had, I'd watched that before a long time ago and I would completely forgotten about it. But if anybody else in Atlanta happens to remember, it's a show where, where, uh, people go and they stay in prison for 60 days as an experiment for a TV show. Um, but like I was saying, if, it, if Atlanta people remember a lot of um, uh, people in, in this area, I think got really excited because I, I think it was season, I say, I think, I'm literally looking at my notes and I know this. Uh, so it, it was seasons three and four were set at uh, a prison in Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, so yeah, it was like, a, we were all looking for uh, people we know or, or something. Um but we did. So this also brings up the weird question is like, why, why do, why do women love prison shows and serial killers shows? Or is it just, is it the one, the women that I find attractive? Um, like that's the, or maybe it's the opposite way. It's like only somebody that could love those things could possibly tolerate me because I'm a psychopath. I don't know either way. Um, I don't even want to, follow that line of questioning because I probably don't want to know the answer. But if you're interested, 60 Days In is streaming on Netflix now. Uh, and I I need to ask her if she was interested in, or, I, or if you're listening, I can ask you through this if uh, I, uh, so gee, I'm wondering if, if you were suggested 60 Days In by Netflix or if you were just interested and sought it out and saw that it was on Netflix and also Hulu, I think you've said the reason, the reason I'm asking that is because, um, I don't know who has watched or studied over the the last couple of years, uh, different articles or the documentary about algorithms, but clearly Netflix at, at one point had paid a, um, millions of dollars, I think to create one of the most expensive uh, computer algorithms of all time. Uh, when I say that, I think like they spent more money on creating an, an algorithm than anybody had, any company had up until that point to track viewers habits and then suggest different things to watch based on those viewer habits with the highest percentage likelihood that the person would enjoy what they were saying based on previous things that they had seen. So I don't, but I I know that Netflix also makes suggestions based on what they want you to see. So I'm always curious if uh, the things that Netflix is suggesting to me are based on the things that I have watched and the things that I enjoy, or if I am being pushed out stuff that everybody is being uh, pushed out. I, I don't know how to say it. I'm saying that weird. So one of the things that I recently started watching based on that is the reality show Forged in Fire, which is a blacksmithing competition. And it is, uh, I, I hated it at first and yet I also love it. There's things there. I think it is both the best reality game show I've ever seen. And at the same time, the worst, the thing that is great about it 
is it is about blacksmithing and they really, they stick to the blacksmithing. There's not a lot of like personal drama. The contestants aren't really at each other's throat. They're just trying to forge the, the cutlery knives, swords, and different metal weapons. And then they're judged. And they, uh, the thing I do not like about it is apparently blacksmiths are the most insecure, uh, tradesmen I have ever seen. Every reality show you always see, uh, starting back with, I remember last comic standing, they actually made, made the comics go into the little booth and they had to do things like say, I know I'm funnier than this other contestant, but they were very aggressive. They were very cutthroat. You know, uh, the survivor guys, they all knew they were going to win. They wanted that million dollars. These forged in fire contestants are so insecure. Every single one, the host will be like, are you ready to test your blade? And they're like, Oh, I I don't, uh, if, if you have to, it's kind of hard to watch. I wish one of these guys would just come out. Come on. This is, this is a manly competition. It's like supposed to be the most manly thing, uh, ever in competition. I think it was actually started when, uh, I'm, I, I don't remember what executive, but it was like somebody that works for Fox or something. But one there, there was a TV exec that was just watching all the cake competitions and it's like, Hey, let's make a, a really manly competition. Um, We'll make uh, people forging weapons. They originally wanted to have it be gun related, but there was way too much problems with that. So I think this is more interesting because it's not even about the weapons to me. I'm just, I've always been fascinated by blacksmithing. And so it's so cool to see a competition where I get to see a little bit of it. And I've been learning a little bit of it. I actually, I wish it wasn't a competition though. I would actually just literally love to see our episodes of a blacksmith blacksmithing. I should probably watch that show how it's made or something. I, I, that used to be my fall asleep show too, because I, and I don't know how anything is made. I just, I would put it on and I've never seen an episode, but I'm pretty sure it's about how things are made. Uh, anybody that has watched forged in fire and apparently it's, it's, it's uh, new to Netflix, but it was on a and E or the history channel. And it was on for eight seasons, so it's been around for a while. So you might have heard about it before I did, but I don't watch, I don't watch terrestrial or cable TV anymore. But every, but everybody that's a fan of the show, there's a big following of him online. Is the judge Doug Mercada? Uh, if you've seen the show, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. He's the, I don't know, ethnically ambiguous guy that always judges the weapons with the keel test. And then, then his catchphrase is always overall, this weapon will keel. And there's a lot of clips of that online of him saying that. And the funny thing is I, I thought it was funny how he's pronouncing kill keel. And then I looked up online and apparently he didn't want to say the word kill. So he was saying he apparently, according to the internet, he's never confirmed this, but this is what sources say is that he is saying keel K E A L K A E K E A L, which is an acronym he made up for keep everyone alive. And he, he did this because he knew that this was a very family friendly show. There was kids watching. And so he didn't want to, uh, be saying this weapon will kill, but I don't think if, if that's true, I think it's kind of dumb because they're basically testing these weapons on, uh, animal carcasses, ballistic gel, human models that have all the organs he's talking, you know, he'll get done testing the knives on a human body mannequin and be like the weapon penetrated the heart. It made them cut the spine off the head of this weapon will kill. So it's, it's not like kids were going to kill just because you were the word kill. Plus everybody thinks you're saying the word kill. They just think you're pronouncing it weird. So yeah, it's, it's my favorite and least favorite show reality show all the time. So I got, I got into forged in fire and then I got really excited because, because of that Netflix suggested another one called 
Blown Away, which is a glass-blowing reality show contest. This one is not as good, and straight up just not as good, not as good. It's more traditional. You all these contestants are way more. They're uh, what you expect. They're all being like, "Oh man, my my glass piece is gonna be amazing." Uh, this is this. The crazy thing though is it's so funny. They're they're so hippie on this show. Um, you get a lot more artists. The the Fortune Fire has all, a high percentage of people that are like, "I'm." I'm a veteran and I have a hard time dealing with people. When I got back, I got PTSD and hammering some metal helps me bang out a lot of my feelings. I want to get into blacksmithing. I wanted to do that for a long time. And this has sort of reignited my uh, desire to do that. Glass blowing. I'd love to to blow some glass at some point too. But uh, these people are like, yeah, I decided that uh, I wanted my piece to represent the, the, in the privilege of us being in a first world country having food and that we take food for granted. And so what does that mean to all the people in third world countries that don't get to eat every day? That's, that's a little bit much for me. I kind of just want to see you blow some glass. Also, uh, it's a little hard to watch because, um, one, uh, one, when glass apparently, is brought out of the furnace or whatever, uh, something. Um, they talk about that part of it is, uh, called, called a glory hole. So they keep saying, um, glory hole over and over, which is very difficult to take seriously. Also other, other name blown away, terrible name for a show. I think they lost a lot of opportunities to have better names. My suggestion for a better name, which you get a lot more people watching, is uh, Glass to Mouth. Glass to Mouth. That's, I don't have my rim shot uh, all set up on my soundboard. Otherwise, I would have given myself one. <laughs> uh, a rim shot, not glass. Okay. Never mind. Moving on. So that's, that's the reality TV show. I've been watching. I've also been trying. So I've uh, actually, this question came up the first time I read slash listened to the audiobook of Silver the Silver Linings Playbook. Now, when you listen to an audiobook, do you tell people that you read the book or that you listened to the audiobook? It's it's a lot longer and in, more inconvenient to say, "Hey, I listened to this audiobook." And it just doesn't come out naturally either. You want to be able to tell people because you can talk authoritatively about a book that you've listened to. There's like mentally, there's no difference. You have absorbed all the same information, but I think people don't hold it as, as in, in as high regard if you listen to an audiobook versus if you read. I don't know if that's still the case, but I know when I was in little school, if, if I wanted to listen to an audiobook, People were like, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty good. That's better than not reading, but you really need to learn to read. And I think that is just sort of people have, have shifting views on media. I, I don't remember if we've talked about this on here, but it's the thing I talk about with people all the time about how when books came out, they were really frowned upon because spoken word was the only way to communicate and people thought that the telling stories to one another was the highest form of intellectual transfer of ideas. And so when people thought that the written word came out, they were like, that is an adulteration of the purest way to communicate, which is talking. So books used to be viewed the way TV was viewed uh, compared to books when I was in little school. You're getting that way now to the point where people are saying things like video games, uh, internet videos are art. And it's just sort of like older generations that have every generation has a hard time um, accepting new media sources as, as being as authoritative and as quality as the technology that you were born into in your generation. So I don't know. That's an interesting discussion. We maybe we'll get more into that at some other point too. I haven't really studied it. It's just sort of in, in neat information that I picked up and it's really changed the way I think of things because I've always thought 
uh, video games were stupid. Not not stupid. I mean, I've I've played some in my life. I like the idea of them. I always want to play more video games. I'm the only boy in the world that's always like, I wish I played video games, and I don't really. Um, but I, it's because I always thought that they were a lower form of entertainment than things I liked. I'm a big film fan. You know, I want to get into movies and stuff, and I've worked in small capacities trying to get to that way. But I always viewed video games as inferior when in fact I think they're really starting to be seen as legitimate art in very in, in small but becoming more mainstream communities. They have their own awards. Uh, one, of, one of the big the big things that I think really backs this up is for a while the people that write the scripts to video games because they're they're like interactive movies at this point with enormous amounts of, of script to and dialogue and, and story many times even more than movies or TV shows because these things can last hours and hours. They can take like 30 to 100 hours to play. Uh, and so the, the people that were writing those for a while fell under the Screen Actors Guild, I believe, or, or maybe like not union-wise, but it had something to do with the, the writing awards, the SAG awards or the WAG awards or something. But um, at one point, the video game writers were being compared to screenwriters or something. So who's, who's to say, and I'm, I'm of the philosophy that the medium doesn't matter necessarily. There's no direct correlation between the, the media source and how good the story is. Different things are made for different mediums. One of my, my new favorite things of all time is the Sandman comic book series by Neil Gaiman. You've probably heard me talk about that over the last couple um, episodes of podcast and in podcasting. That's a new thing that uh, radio was dying. Terrestrial radio was dying and, and podcasting almost didn't make it. And then it became a very strong podcasting is stronger now than it, it was 10 years ago, or I don't, I don't know the dates. I don't know if podcasting existed 10 years ago, but um, podcasting is stronger than radio right now. And it, it probably is going to eclipse TV, terrestrial TV. I don't know if they call it TV, terrestrial TV. I know uh, they call it terrestrial radio now. Um, terrestrial radio is losing out to satellite radio or just streaming music. Everybody listens to streaming. So, I don't know, but I just tell people I read the book, even if I listen to the audio book. So I just read on audible.com <laughs> on my audible account, uh, well reread the stranger by Albert Camus. Um, and I'm going to get to that one second, but uh, when I say I reread it, I listened to it a second time. I read it originally when I was in little school. And it's been one of my favorite books. It's been one of the few books that I've read right along with The Great Gatsby and The Silver Linings Playbook. And the, the reason I like The Stranger, we've been talking about existentialism for the last couple of episodes. Well, The Stranger is right there in the thick of things from existentialist thought. It was written by, like I said, Albert Camus, Albert Camus in France in 1942. Nazi occupied France. It, when it came out, there was speculation or, or looking back in retrospect, uh, people are surprised that it really remained uncensored by the Nazis because the Nazi party basically read the book and they, they were censoring a lot of things at the point at that time because they didn't want to promote any ideology that went against what they were trying to spread around the world. And they did not see any threat in the ideology or writing of the stranger when in fact, maybe that was the right choice or maybe it was wrong because it is a threat to everyone or, or no one. Maybe it's fraying. That's the, that's the whole idea. Okay. The whole, if you're not familiar, the plot of the stranger 
is about a guy named Marcel, who is this guy living in Algeria, and he and it starts off with him finding out his his mom has died, and he goes to the funeral, and he basically he doesn't care. It's not it's not that he doesn't care. It's that he doesn't really react with the intense sadness that everybody else expects him to. So they all become suspicious and they think he's weird. And he basically is, is way too calm and he's hanging out, hanging out with the undertaker and he, he, uh, um, starts up a relationship with, uh, I don't really remember cause I was listening to it. So I missed some of the details. I think it's the secretary or something. Um, but it's, it's a real sort of lackadaisical, uh, you know, he's, he's hanging out, but he, he has this whole very, very French, very existentialist attitude of like, you know, it, nothing matters uh, because nothing can be controlled or, or the, the world is, is mad. So the only way you can find peace is to sort of know we can't control anything and not read too much into anything. And then for some reason, another reason, but I'm just, I'm, we're doing a really, really cliff notes version of this. Uh, he shoots some people and then he goes to jail. And then the second half of the book is him being in jail, sort of being sad, but then again, like not being sad the way people think you should be sad. And so even, even a chaplain comes to him and it's sort of like, Hey man, if you'll just sort of accept God, maybe you could show the courts that you're a reformed person and they'll have sympathy on you and they'll, uh, grant a stay to your execution. And it's just, and this whole thing is just like, what, why nothing matters. Maybe there is no God. Uh, I'm here. And so I'm not going to spoil the ending. Um, because even if I tell it to you, uh, I still don't understand it. So how can I spoil it? I'm just kidding. Actually, the reason I love it is because I feel like I understand it all too well. Uh, yeah, he basically, this guy just goes through all these different somewhat tragic events, even though he doesn't really see them as tragic. He, he suffers from depression from them at some point, but he also just sort of, he finds his peace in accepting that he can't do anything about them. That that's not the right way to say it because that's not really what existentialism is about. It's not saying don't do anything because you can't do anything. It's sort of saying find the peace and stop. You can find your peace if you stop fighting this, this desire to rationalize the world, you can't, it's mad. When you stop fighting that instinct, you'll free yourself up to find peace. So I'm not a philosopher myself and I'm not all that smart. I don't know if I'm even right or if that makes sense, but, uh, I really enjoy the book because it, it makes me, I, I understand it by feel, uh, I just don't have the knowledge, the sort of intellectual understanding and the literary background to explain it, but I get it for myself. There's different levels of understanding. And so it's like, I, I absorb it and comprehend it, but I can't quite explain it back, but that's okay. There's no problem to it there. Okay. So when it first came out, there was only 4,400 copies printed. So it was not, even though it's like an amazing classic, classic book, mandatory reading for a lot of schools and stuff, people couldn't buy that many copies. So it was not a bestseller when it came out just because technically uh, they did not print enough copies for it to be considered a bestseller. Even though in a way, I think it should, because if you only print 4,400 copies, you could literally sell every copy of that uh, in a day or so. I don't know how many people were buying books in occupied Germany in 1942, but I digress. So the uh, French magazine, Le Monde magazine, which I believe is French for the world magazine, 
ranked it as the number one book out of the top 100 books of all time. Do think it's a little biased to have, uh, to take it and say it's the number one book of all time, according to a French magazine, because it is also a French book. It's probably high up there on all the lists of top books. Actually, I have not read any lists of top 100 books, so I'm really not familiar with that at all. I've read so many different lists of top 100 movies, like the Entertainment Weekly, IMDb, uh, the the Film Academy. Like there's so um, so many different lists, and, and generally everybody on on the different lists has Casablanca. Uh, Federico Fellini's eight and a half. You have the Godfather sort of, sort of depending on what list, but you have a similar top, top five to 10 rotating between all the lists. I think generally eight and a half might be thought of as the best of film of all time. At least it, it has been, you know, these things could be updated. I'm sure the cutting edge is getting close to the top by now because that came out after a lot of these lists were printed. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook is probably, probably definitely in the top 33. Uh, I'm saying that because I would put it at 33. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it's number one according to this podcast in the way that The Stranger is number one to Le Mans magazine. I, I'm guessing Le Mans means the world. And so this is going to be a funny connection. This is actually why we picked the quote for the beginning quote too. Um, so I know the word Le, Le Mans from the 2001 song. I am going to have to apologize in advance because I'm going to be butchering so much French over the next little bit. But uh, the 2001 song, uh, Les Rois du Monde, which I think also means Kings of the World. This is a song that is from the 2001 French musical of Romeo and Juliet. It was entitled Romeo et Juliet. I don't know what that means. I'm assuming et means and or ampersand. I mean, and ampersand also being one of my favorite punctuation marks, ellipsis being my second. Or is it? So the thing I, I, I listened to this song is a French musical. Honestly, I so wish that it had been released in the U.S. I've never seen the full musical. There's clips online of the different songs and some snippets of different productions. But I had never actually seen the music video that went with sort of the the big musical number song, the big single, basically, from the from the Broadway show, uh, Les Voix du Monde. And if... If you might remember what I'm talking about, because it did get some international acclaim. Uh, I don't know if, if anybody remembers that song. If you're a theater student, you might have heard that. Um, putting some of the most popular things together to theater students, musicals and Romeo and Juliet. How has that not been released in the U S the production run in the Americas? I would, I would go see it. Uh, even though it is ridiculously dated now too. Uh, it, it is so let's, let's actually listen to some of the lyrics. I don't, I don't actually know any of the words. I, I know the sounds. I used to be able to sing along sort of phonetically with it, but I never knew what I was saying. But like I was saying, okay, so with the proliferation of, of YouTube now, apparently, so there's, there's a music video of it that is not like a recording of the stage production, but it's like an, it's like an MTV music video from 2001. It's so nineties. It's ridiculous. It, it is so French and so nineties. And yet it is great, even though 
it is so awful. There's three dudes that I think is supposed to be, uh, like Romeo and Mercutio and the other guy walking down the street. And imagine, imagine if Reservoir Dogs was like a perfume commercial or cologne commercial or something. You have these guys looking so serious, but you know. It's, you know, you just can't look like a badass gangster in a, in a feuding war if you're singing like that. And I'm, I'm saying that as a person that loves theater and especially, and I love the West Side Story, which I guess was the closest thing we have is to an American telling of Romeo and Juliet as a musical. And West Side Story is excellent excellent very like and i'm not even saying that just as a musical as a film it is a great film um it probably influenced my littlehood way more than i should have but that is a subject for a different story but i do i do love musicals that's where i know the word dumon from uh something i used to run it was funny well, uh, and this is like back in, I don't know when Facebook st- first started having pages. I don't have any of my accounts active right now, but, um, I used to have a page that I started before pages got popular. Or there was any reason to have them that was Disney songs in foreign languages. Right. And so I really, it's, they're so funny. It's the funny part is to me, when they change the words or they actually translate the words into the other language and they sing the song in their native language, which which makes a lot of sense that they do that. I just find it weird because like if you watch uh, the Spanish channels, Telemundo or something, there's there's often American words that they will say, even though there is a translation for it or something, they'll still say the American brand name or something. So apparently one of the most popular recent musicals that just went around the world with different translations is uh, another one that I've never seen, but would like to. I hear, I think there's a film version coming out soon, but this is the Korean version. And one, I already think Asian languages are ridiculous. Please don't ban me. I probably shouldn't be saying this stuff. Just let anybody that doesn't know me know I am Korean myself. I've just lived in America my whole life. So that's why I'm saying this sounds funny. There's nothing wrong being Korean, but just let's come, come on, listen to this for a second. That is popular from the musical Wicked, and that was the Korean version. Korean, I'm not sure if Korean sounds like a really dirty language, which might explain something about me. It also sounds like it's just the regular American version being played backwards. I know more French than I know Korean and there's not a lot of hard consonants in it. So I think that's it. I'm not making fun of Korean, but, but two American sensibilities, people that are raised on the American phonetic alphabet, um, or the, or the Greek go rum. I, I don't know what they're called, but, uh, yeah. So I know this from comedy and I know this scientifically from comedy that like the B sound is funnier. K sound is the funniest sound according to science to an American, a Western audience. So that's why, why when you're learning comedy, they always say use as many hard K sounds as you can. Um, it's just funny. I guess that's why French is funny too. And also just because it sort of sounds like, uh, (laughs) 
like they're they're moaning when they say everything one of okay one of my favorite things and this is this whenever i talk about musicals i always have to talk about what was one of my favorite movies of all time because it is a musical and nobody's ever heard of it the reason that i'm always shocked that nobody's ever heard of it is because it is loaded with stars i get it musicals are not super popular with american movie going audiences so I get that. My, my friends are not likely to have seen Everyone Says I Love You. But how has nobody even heard that it exists? It is a Woody Allen film, and he is super famous and makes a lot of amazing movies. Uh, he has been involved in multiple scandals, so I get it if his reputation is tarnished and you don't like him anymore because of that. But people still haven't heard of him, and he's made movies since this one. This is not even a recent movie, you know, and people know his more recent movies over this one. But everyone says I love you. One of my favorite movies of all time. When I, back when I think I was in film school and I made my first top five list of my favorite movies, uh, it, I, I think it, and I don't remember completely, but it was like Kill Bill, The Reservoir, Dogs, Top Gun, Mary Poppins, The Lion King, Mean Girls, and Everyone Says I Love You. And yes, yes, I know that I said top five. It, it, it was a rotating list. Also, I'm not going to put a movie on there that nobody's heard of because I'm not a hipster that wants my list to be full of movies that nobody's ever heard. The reason people should have known about this movie is it uh, features Alan Alda, Woody Allen, Drew Barrymore, Goldie Hawn, Natasha Leone, Edward Norton, Natalie Portman, Julia Roberts, Tim Roth, and and more. That's like the big names from it. And there's plenty of other names. That, that has got to be one of the most star-studded casts I've ever heard of for a movie. And And what's more, they all do their own singing, except for Drew Barrymore, who uh, convinced the director Woody Allen that her voice was just too terrible. And so they, they dubbed hers over, I think, which is really funny because I think she actually probably would have an adorable singing voice. Based, I, I like her regular voice. It, it's a little gruffer, but it's, it's sort of got like that deep, like a um, sort of like Gillian Anderson, sort of a distinct little bit masculine side. Okay. Also Lucas Haas was in the, everyone says I love you. I don't know if you know who Lucas Haas is. I had to look up to confirm this cause I didn't know the actor's name until I was looking up the cast from this, but I, you'd, you'd recognize him if you see him. Maybe Lucas Haas was the kid in Mars attacks. And this is super embarrassing. I remember loving that movie as a kid. Uh, it was one of the last VHS tapes that I got. Uh, and, and when movies were transitioning to DVDs. And I thought that Lucas Haas was Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson was not huge at that point. Uh, she might not have even been out as an actress at that point, but I had seen Lucas Haas in Mars attacks later saw Scarlett Johansson when she hit the, the Hollywood scene thought they were the same person. Actually, I didn't realize that they weren't until tonight. So that is an embarrassing Jamie fact. Anyway, uh, one of the reasons that I love everyone says I love you so much. My baby don't care for rings or other expensive things. My baby just cares for me. My baby don't go for big Rolls Royces. There's sometimes a doubt about her choices. So this is Edward Norton singing. And the, the, like I was saying, the reason that I like it is it's, uh, it was, I believe a nineties movie, but it was made in a, in a very classic sort of like a sixties musical Broadway musical film 
or something. So it's not, it's not like the modern versions of how they make them like the greatest showman or Moulin Rouge or, or, uh, even, even the new Evita. Oh yeah. I forgot that Evita is on my list of five rotating top five movies of all time. Even, even though I really would love to see the stage version. I never have. That's one of my goals. I've, I've been chasing it around, uh, trying, trying to see it. And I just, I've never, I used to travel so much. I could never go see things. I never had to see things, but different traveling theater production companies or not traveling, but like different local theaters, uh, will do productions of it because it's a great, great show. And the worst part of the movie was Madonna. And I'm saying that as a Madonna fan too. I think she is just absolutely wonderful and, you know, is a very iconic, talented person. It's just weird casting and her performance in it is not as strong. If you listen and I am embarrassed to say how much I have listened to the original, uh, Broadway recording version on long drives, but the, the Patty Lapone and Mandy Patinkin version is really, really good. Antonio Banderas is good in Evita, the movie. So the movie just made the list because it's one of my favorite musicals. And the only way I ever get to see it is in the film version, which many people think is not very good. Evita is by Andrew Lloyd Webber too, who I mentioned at the beginning with the Phantom of the Opera. So a lot of people that are theater snobs aren't big fans of Andrew Lloyd Webber in general because they think he's sort of poppy, kitschy, but I am not a theater snob. I just enjoy the things I like. So, you know. I don't care for rings or other expensive things. My baby just cares for me. And see, that's that's Edward Norton literally singing. How can nobody know that that was a movie? They're not great. He doesn't make all these actors into Broadway stars or anything. He so there is a little bit of a rough quality to them, their performances musically, but they're not huge musical numbers. I mean, like they're, they're pretty short songs compared to the, um, you know, and most of them are not even original. I think there might only be like one or two original songs for, for the movie. And a lot of them are old standards and, and stuff, or I don't, I, I used the term old standard. I'm not actually sure what that technically means. I think I'm saying the right thing, but like you'd recognize other songs from other places. Uh, but, it, but the, the, having the actual actors, sing their different parts makes it a just a sort of authentic and very genuine organic feel to it and it is it's one of my favorite happy movies they're definitely sad movies um would love to would love to see a musical version of the french romeo and juliet you know what they could even do it in french too i don't know i think the closest we might get unfortunately That was, that's Love Story by Taylor Swift, and that was her first bad song. That was when mm, she really fell off the the edge on her second album, I think, Fearless, right before she got super amazing with 1989, my favorite album of all Taylor Swift albums, except for the first one, the third one, and parts of Red. Um, I have some theories about Taylor Swift albums, but they are not important, but you know, we don't need to, yeah, we don't need to remember that that is a song because that was, that was sort of like, I feel the first one that she put out when I'm like, Oh, this is not, this is just way too poppy and terrible. And it's not the kind of thing I want to listen to. I would much rather hear I don't remember the sounds that go with that. So I don't, we're, we're, um, covered a a lot more, uh, than I had really intended to 
today, and yet I feel like far less information than we normally do. So it's time to get back to work. Uh, one of the fun things I was finding, though, this is just for your own interest, the podcast is basically over at this point, but I like, you know, I like to edit funny little videos, or at least I think, I, I think they're funny. I try to make them funny. And one of the things I have been doing is changing, uh, re remixing the trailers to Ken Burns's documentary series is, I have so many little sketch and video clips now and I have nothing to do with them since I've deactivated my social media. So I'm thinking about maybe, I mean, I guess I still have a YouTube page, but I don't use YouTube pages. All I do is put my videos on there and then I share them to my other things. So I'm either going to have to reactivate soon or, uh, stop wasting my time on making these things. And that, that was one of the reasons um, that I'm currently staying off of those things too, because uh, they were, they were so time consuming. I felt my, I found myself checking them all the time and they just make me angry or sad or, or see things that, and that, uh, I didn't want to, or, or hate people or be jealous. A lot of people, all other comics always posting the, the gigs that they got. And I, I've had a very, uh, lucky career where I've gotten so much more, uh, thing and and social media is just madness. We can't control it. It it really is the madness. So being off of it is one of the most existential things you can do, right? Because we're basically saying that social media is crazy, and I can find a lot more inner peace when I'm not trying to make sense out of that madness. Again, that's, I think that's going to be the new sound clip that, that we play. If anybody gets that reference, um, probably not too many people can't see there being a huge crossover fan base that would recognize. Like an angel with cruel and merciless intent, go forth, young boy, and you'll become a legend. That and people that like silver linings playbook, even though they should, because I, like I said, I think silver linings playbook is a very existential film. And we've never even gotten into why I say that we've been building, talking about philosophy for the last number of weeks. So maybe we'll get into that. We'll do an actual rewatch of the film with a, a philosophical reading of it, a, a, an existentialist take the people that would have crossover though, the people that like, are probably also fans. That is, that is terrible stereotyping of me. That is Korean. And I'm talking about, uh, anime series and anime is Japanese. So totally different things. Anyway, I, I, I lost track of what I was saying. So I make, I, what I do is I make these clips of Ken Burns documentaries and I've been taking away the really sweet like civil war music to a civil war documentary and injecting no no hit the wrong button okay anybody that knows me knows that i am a boston boy at heart i'm sorry uh, i know the whole world is disappointed by that everybody hates the city of Boston, except for people from Boston who love the city of Boston. And there's fewer people from Boston. There are in the whole rest of the world combined. So that means more people hate Boston than, uh, love it. But you know what? That's okay. Because love is not a rational thing. And, uh, I love Boston and there's nothing more synonymous than Boston than dropkick Murphy's. And, and so I actually found a clip we're going to close out, not on this song, but on uh, uh, the sound recording of a clip I found from myself last year when I was on tour with, with my road partner, my best friend, my bud, uh, Conrad. We were traveling for the World Series of Comedy. We actually went to Boston, and I, I did this everywhere we went. I think I actually recorded this specific one in Chicago, which is Conrad's hometown. But uh, this is a bit I used to do on stage just to basically make people hate me. 
I got like seven minutes to get to the showroom, but uh, I thought one of y'all said I couldn't play Dropkick Murphys on a recorder, and I just want you to know. Not bad, right? Uh, because bad would be much better than it deserved to be. Because that was awful. I get it. All right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as we know, it is still the only podcast solely devoted to Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Um, here's to a 24th episode this was a lot of fun albeit less informative than it was we will look into doing a good serious in-depth deep dive informative episode next week i say that hopefully i won't get it done because hopefully i will be busy with more important things so i guess it probably will be done all right until next time we'll see you down the road and excelsior He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Oh yeah.